Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies On Air. It's been a very long time since we sat down to chat, and I hope that you've been safe and healthy during these chaotic times. I know that for me, it's been a whirlwind, and I'm really happy to be getting back onto my feet and finding my rhythm again with the podcast. Today's podcast is actually going to come in two segments. We're going to have the first installment today and the second later on this week. We're going to be talking about West Mexico, which is an area that is generally not talked about as much as it should be, but I found a really great expert who's going to give us a comprehensive view of Western Mexico. So please tune in. I'm super excited about this episode. Tony knows so much, and I think you're going to learn so much by listening in. So today we are going to be chatting with Tony DeLuca, who is a PhD student at the University of Texas at San Antonio focused on West Mexican archaeology. His research interests include architectural energetics, labor organization, iconography, landscape, public archaeology, and remote sensing. So, Tony, why don't you give us a little bit of background information on which region we're talking about here? All right, Catherine. Um, West Mexico, uh, if you look at a map of Mexico, typically comprises of the modern states of Nayarit, Jalisco, Colima, and Michoacan, and sometimes Zacatecas, Guanajuato, and Sinaloa. Um, This region of of Mexico um, receives less focus than other parts of Mesoamerica, partly through its colonial history, how it was conquered and incorporated into the Spanish colonial government, and also the kinds of societies and cultures the Spanish encountered as they moved their way out of the basin of Mexico and central Mexico, westward and northward. It's similar to central Mexico. If people have been there, it's uh, semi-arid. It gets, it has like a lengthy rainy season, steep mountains, broad valleys, a lot of ranching, a lot of farming. Uh, It really is a continuation of the central Mexican plateau, just the furthest western part of it. And um, it has a different archeological history than the rest of Mesoamerica to a point where it intertwines and splits off multiple times, which I find really interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely has been kind of set aside, I guess, in in the, the Mesoamerican scholarship. but as we've been talking about prior to this conversation, there's a lot that we can learn from it. Um, And the West Mexican culture itself is pretty old, right? It's at least as old as the Olmec. Yeah, we have, there's some archeological evidence going back as, as far back as the Paleolithic period and the Archaic period. It's kind of scant and it's partly the result of how much archeological research is done in the area and you know, how, how deep people dig and what they find. Uh, but for the most part, we see cultures emerge in the early formative period, like the rest of Mesoamerica, around 1500 to 900 BC. And uh, the two major cultures that we see in West Mexico that emerge are named after two different sites. Uh, one is called El Apeño, in Michoacan, it's located just southeast of Lake Chapala across the Jalisco and Michoacan border. And then the other is the Capacha culture in Colima, named after a site in, in Colima. Um, El Apeño is unique. It is a cemetery site composed of early shaft and chamber tombs. Um, they, they don't quite have the same shafts as the later tombs. Their shafts compose more of a short staircase that then leads into a chamber that's dug in, underground. And then the Capacha culture, um, they're known for their burials in, in Colima and their distinct uh, ceramic ware, which are these stirrup vessels that look similar to stirrup vessels in South America. Uh, which typically compose of like two, if you imagine two vessels stacked up, stacked on top of each other. Sometimes they're connected with one to three cylinder tubes, and then they have a handle on top. Um, 
And those are found along the coast of Kalima, up into Nayarit, um, down into Khan. They seem to be really active along the coast. Um, but you see Capacha-style material and Elopeño-style material appear in central Mexico at sites like Tlatilco, which is kind of this hmm. east meets west site in the basin of Mexico. You got Olmec stuff and West Mexican stuff. And for whatever reason, Eastern Mesoamerica won out in the basin and pushed the Western stuff back west. Don't know why, but it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting mix between the two at such an early period. Yeah, that is a really interesting dynamic. Like, uh, so in West Mexico, um, part of the reason why it may not have gained as much focus is we don't see an Olmec influence in West Mexico like we see here and there in the rest of Mesoamerica. Um, we, it, they, they're in their own trajectory. They develop things on their own, um, but in a similar manner. Like out at Elapeno, in the, the cemetery, in the tombs, uh, archaeologists found ceramic figurines of people, vessels, even jadeite pieces. So they are engaged in, in a, a network of trade. And some of their ceramic figurines depict ball players. Uh, both men and women, so they're all they already know about the ball game the same time the Olmec do. We right. haven't found a court, but they know of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a really interesting point to highlight is that we frequently have this idea, or at least you know, to to someone who's just learning about Mesoamerica. I feel like the idea that the further back in time you go, the more isolated these cultures are. And when you really dive into it, you see that ideas of exchange and interaction were already there. These were things that were happening a really long time ago. Um, and I love that West Mexico shows that, right? It, it, it shows those examples of interaction and exchange happening so many thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and like the reason for the ebb and flow with their, their contact with the rest of Mesoamerica is still uncertain. Like, I mean, we don't know if it's by their choice, by the choices of, uh, choices of their neighbors, whether they're being cut off from trade or whether they're purposely not seeking trade. Like we know the Tarascans or the Purapecha at the post-classic, they did their best to not trade with the Aztec triple alliance they had because they had a feud going on, but they still, they still managed to, to trade whether through other inter- intermediaries like the Otomi and the same, same thing Aztecs. They didn't want to trade with the Purapecha, but they also kept getting Purapecha bronze goods like through a black market exchange or, or maybe they just say they're not trading, but they do it anyway. <laughs> um, so there's, the, I think there's a social component to, to that interaction. Because uh, when you look at a geographic map of the region, there's no major barriers between like where Guadalajara is and, and Mexico City. There's no major mountain ranges. There's no impassable rivers. Yet there's, few, there's less contact between the two areas than say Mexico City and where Oaxaca City is. And if anyone's driven between the two, you know the mountains are steep and scary and there's buses that try to pass each other and it's not a fun drive. <laughs> right, <laughs> sounds terrifying. <laughs> so there's, there's a social component throughout time that, that's interesting. Right. Yeah, and so an- another thing that you mentioned that I, I wanted to just ask about, and this is, you know, just something that I'm curious about. You mentioned the the similarities between the stirrup vessels in West Mexico and mm-hmm. South America. Obviously, the Capacha culture, it's, it's on the coast. What evidence, mm-hmm. if any, is there for contact between North and South America at this time? There's some evidence. It's... 
really kind of circumstantial mm-hmm. a little bit. There's no, there's no smoking gun. Um, there was a recent Dumbarton Oak Symposium last fall on this very subject, and they have an edited volume that'll be coming out soon. I, I don't know the exact date, uh, but I did attend the symposium, and the result is that there's likely sustained but infrequent contact through time along the coast uh, through like uh, using balsa wood rafts or maybe even people moving by foot just slower but Mm -hmm. it's it's not so much direct contact between say Ecuador and West Mexico they're hopping along the coast um, sometimes between ports along Central America because you can't you can't just take enough supplies to make a trip from point A to point B and one of the the presenters his whole his whole paper was computer models mapping out the feasibility of making a journey along the coast and it's doable uh, if you time your departure right um, mm. but the the stirrup vessels are one one piece of similarity. Um, I think it's Patricia Annawalt suggested clothing style. Uh, Dorothy Hostler showed how uh, metallurgical techniques uh, likely came from like Panama and northern Ecuador into West Mexico around or between like 700 and 900 and then metallurgy spread out from there to the rest of Mesoamerica. Um, so there are people moving, but they don't always leave enough evidence. Right. Um, I mean, if you think about now, here and now, if you go on a camping trip, typically people do their best not to leave stuff behind despite potentially traveling several states away to go camping. Mm-hmm. I mean, you went, you went and you came back, but there's not, a, you know, there's no evidence being left behind. And that may, that may be the same thing. Um, it, it's been suggested that perhaps South Americans were traveling north to get spondylus shells. Um, there's a couple species that you can harvest, and one of them is uh, rarer than the other. But you, you can't really source spondylus shell. So right. at least at, at this point. So even if, if you have all the spondylus shell artifacts from a site in Peru or Ecuador, you don't know if it's from the shells coming from coastal Peru or Ecuador or further north. Um, mm-hmm. People are working on it because they want to, they want to know, but it's it's still kind of circumstantial the the contact between the two areas yeah but hopefully an interesting avenue and you know at the very least it's prompting questions that i think are really important yeah i i can't recall the um the name of the researcher but for i, I remember her master's thesis was on perpetual words for metallurgy and whether there were um similarities to words metallurgical words in south american languages and she hadn't found any similarities unfortunately because you would think if someone's traveling they're bringing that knowledge of metallurgy they might bring the terms on what what to do with metals like how to to cast it or smelt it but for her study yeah she hadn't found any similar terms. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, so we know then that at least during this early period, there was some sort of interaction. There was exchange of ideas throughout Mesoamerica, definitely, and possibly with other areas. Um, What -hmm. happens later on in the formative period? Well, in the middle formative period, uh, we really don't have a lot of archaeological sites have been excavated yet. There's 
some shaft tombs that were excavated near the town of Muscota in, in west central Jalisco, more in the mountains. So we know that they're continuing the shaft tomb tradition, but other than that, we really don't know what's going on. Um, another archaeologist named Phil Wigan, who works in the Tequila, or who worked in the Tequila Valleys where I work now, had reported uh, the presence of burial mounds. Uh, they were large, low mounds, about 20 meters in diameter, maybe a meter or two high, that were full of just small pit burials. And he described road crews bulldozing one of them, but he didn't publish any photos. Um, as far as I know, he didn't recover anything. He just has a, a simple drawing of, of the map showing the looted uh, burial, mm. uh, the looted burials. So we're not really sure what's going on in, you know, from 900 to 300 BC. Um, but presumably there is like, a growing population, more people are farming, they're obtaining knowledge from elsewhere because by the late formative, then we just see evidence of people everywhere. And it may be the choice of where we're excavating. Um, now looking at late formative sites that may not be on top of middle formative sites. So it, there could be a shift in where they're living, which is why we're not finding evidence of early, earlier occupation. It's kind of a gap, unfortunately, and there's no really good answer to, to give. And, mm -hmm. and it's unfortunate because West Mexico is such a large area and it's just this big question mark. And that's interesting because especially since you know, we, we see activity in the early formative and we see it in the late formative. It does make mm -hmm. sense, like you said, you know, that there would be something going on in between those two periods. And so I think, yeah, the, the fact that the, that the late formative sees an increase in activity and in population does kind of lead you to think that there's just, there's information out there, we just haven't found it yet. Yeah. And for where I work in the Tequila Valleys, I think that evidence might be in the valley bottoms. But there's so much soil accumulation um, from, from the last like 2,000 years, 1,500 years. Um, not only like people in the past using the landscape, but people in the historic period cutting down trees and promoting erosion. I think a lot of that's buried. Um, I, participated in a survey of the Magdalena Lake Basin, which has now had a lake, but it's now drained. And the only middle formative stuff we found was some ceramic sherds a farmer recovered and he was digging a well. And that stuff mm. was recovered like five meters below the surface. So there's, there's no way we could have found it if it was, um, if it was any closer. Right. Um, so they may, they may be, you know, don't cite me because it's not supported, but I, I think they're living on the valley bottom where seasonal arroyos are draining, they have good soil, they have access to water, and this in this period, populations are growing so that by the late formative, we see terracing on the hillsides and sites on hilltops because maybe the valley bottoms are, are too densely populated or too contested now that there's a sufficient number of people, but we'd have to dig to, to prove that for sure. Right, yeah. So then what do we see happening in the late formative period? So the late formative, starting around 300 BC, and this, this is kind of gonna skew towards where I work in the Tequila Valleys in Jalisco, but it's the same sort of pattern we find in Nayarit and Colima um, and Guanajuato, but you s just see the proliferation of house mounds, shaft tombs being constructed, and, 
in Jalisco, then you see monumental ball courts and circular temple groups called Guachimontones. Um, Guanajuato has the Chupicoro culture, which uh, they also did shaft tombs and their material may be recognizable to people where they have these kind of pot belly figurines and they're red and they have geometric patterns on them. Um, those sites are along the Rio, the Rio Lerma, going mm -hmm. from central Mexico west. Um, in Colima, you have like the Comala culture. Um, people would be familiar with Colima stuff if they've ever seen a Colima dog in a museum, the ceramic effigy of a dog. Uh, but they're, they're human figurines. Uh, they're all polished with a reddish orange color. They don't have painted decoration and minimal model decoration. In the Nayarit, you have uh, like Ixtlán del Rio and the Lagunillas culture, which are situated around their respective modern towns. Um, but again, more shaft tombs kind of everywhere, but all, all, all doing their, their own thing because they're separated by distance and kind of their own local history and how it developed. So you don't really see, uh, or we haven't really found circular temple groups in Nayarit, but Nayarit has all these ceramic models of temple groups. Mm -hmm. And then where I work in Jalisco, we have all these buildings, but no models. And then Colima, there's a few really, really big buildings and no iconography or models at all. So again, they're, they're all kind of choosing to do their own thing, but they're, they're really seen as this monolithic group because they, they all participate in using shaft and chamber tombs to bury some of their dead, which are typically elites. Mm -hmm. So then the shaft tombs, are those are the unifying characteristic of all of these groups and the fact that they buried tr traditionally elite people inside of them. And then yeah. the other characteristics might change, but all of them had this same use of shaft tombs. Well, I was going to say, it's only been the last few decades that, that we finally recognize that they are different cultures and we can't think of them as, as uh, one monolithic group. And we've kind of tended to start splitting them based off the art style of their ceramic figurines, only because those have been the focus of the region for so long by looters and archaeologists that it's kind of it's easier to go oh here's an Ixtlán del Rio style figurine rather than look at their vessels or their lithics uh, because that's what's available and published and talked about. Mm, that's interesting yeah and I feel like that's that is a, a unique characteristic or a, a different way of going about it, right? To look at the figurines versus creating a ceramic sequence like you see with other sites. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we've started creating a, a ceramic sequence because we need to. We need to know the chronology, but yeah, it's, it's skewed towards the figurines. It, it, it's, it's hard to use the figurines other than as, a, as an art, uh, like a style guide because mm -hmm. so many of them have been looted and not excavated. So their, their provenience were relying on, on art dealers and looters and trusting them in their reporting of where they stole, or well, not stole, but mm -hmm. looted these artifacts. It's not stealing if it wasn't illegal. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it, it does make it a lot harder to say this came from this, uh, you know, from, from this stratum or, you know, this, this was above this or below this so we can place it into a context with these other yeah. pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been able to, to place the shaft, well, collectively call them the shaft tomb cultures because there have been sites that have been excavated where we get radiocarbon dates so we, we can bracket them. Uh, in time, which is typically around 300 BC to 450, 500 AD. But within that period then is, is the challenge of creating a ceramic 
um, chronology. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's talk about the shaft tombs because I think I remember when I when I was first learning about West Mexico, I thought these were fantastic and just crazy fascinating. Um, and since they are, a, you know, a distinguishing characteristic of this region, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what they were used for and just a little bit of information about them? All right. So um, shaft tombs, they typically compose of a square or circular shaft dug vertically into the ground anywhere from 2 to 17 meters deep. And 17 is the, the extreme. They're usually less than that, I would say less than 10 meters deep. And even that's kind of pushing it. So really like 2 to 5 meters deep and at the bottom of the shaft, then they would start digging horizontally and they would tunnel out a chamber. Um, the shaft and chamber sometimes are called boot shape, where they, it looks kind of like a boot. And in the chamber, um, sometimes there'd be shelves carved in the side uh, to place the dead, or it was just, or it's just a flat floor. But in the chamber, then they would lay out the deceased, usually on their back, and then array mortuary goods around them. Um, the number of people in a tomb can vary, and that's part of the variability of the shaft and chamber tombs themselves. Sometimes tombs are, are single, isolated tombs. Sometimes you have cemeteries. Sometimes they're below architecture, or there's no architecture. Sometimes tombs are, are reopened to add people, either next to the initial burial or... In some cases, the original burial, the, the bones are pushed aside to the edge of the chamber and people are, are laid out. And so you get this accumulation of bones and then the tomb becomes like a family crypt rather than a single burial event. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it makes it interesting in, in, in that this is this variability uh, related to perhaps more local ethnic groups? Or is it a choice because of status? Is it a choice because of the weather? Perhaps it's too rainy, so you have to delay when you bury uh, someone, and, and by the time you can dig out a tomb, you have several people that you can bury. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say, based off the few excavations of tombs, and, and the huge number of looted tombs in which we don't have that kind of information. I know that um, one thing that, that you and I mentioned talking before, um, you mentioned that um, the tomb size or the elaborateness has an inverse relationship with like the surface architecture above it. Um, and I just find that really interesting. I was wondering if there's any reasons why that relationship would be inverted or, you know, what, um, what information we have about that. So uh, this was a, a relationship proposed by Chris Beekman for the Tequila Valleys. So he's not, he's not applying it to other parts of West Mexico. But in the Tequila Valleys, we, we have monumental ball courts. We have the circular temple groups called Guachimantones. And what he's found that is that at the largest site of Los Guachimontones, which is in the center of Tequila Valleys, you know, the base of Tequila vol Volcano, we have the largest buildings. But in terms of material culture uh, depicting people, like the figurines, they're rather simple. They're not that elaborate. And the burials that we found at the site so far are are just pit burials and there's some very small kind of poorly made oh, excuse me uh shaft tombs but they're not it's like a meter and a half two meters deep very small chamber only a few mortuary goods placed inside and it, it doesn't seem to reflect our expectations of the site you think oh this huge site thousands of people living here 
they've got power, they've got wealth, they should have these elaborate tombs, but they don't. Instead, as you move your way to the periphery of the valley, at sites like Huitzilapa and El Arenal, they have very modest public architecture. They have these elaborate or, or monumental shaft tombs. So El Arenal has the monumental tomb um, that was partially looted and in, in reported in 1955 by an archaeologist named Corona Nunez. And it's a 17-meter uh, shaft that goes straight down, and at the bottom are three chambers. They're, they're rather large chambers. And he has pictures of some of the tomb contents, and that's about it. So we don't really know what was in it, how many people, and what kinds of goods. But not far away from El Arenal, just to the northeast, is another site called Huitzilapa, uh, where two archaeologists, uh, Ramos de la Vega and Lorenzo Lopez, they were excavating the site as part of a salvage operation. They went to excavate underneath a house mound and they found a shaft tomb. And at the bottom of this tomb were two chambers with three people in each chamber and tens of thousands of artifacts. And the number is a little high because they were buried with shell necklaces, so you counted each bead. Mm -hmm. But there's still, even if you count like the necklace as a whole, there were still hundreds of artifacts with vessels, figurines, ground stone. Uh, one of the men was buried with uh, jadeite atlatl finger loops, uh, which hmm. were, would have been attached to the, the wooden piece of the atlatl, and another had shell finger loops. Um, there was cork crystal, and there was remnants of paper near one of their, their heads. So it's this huge elaborate tomb underneath a modest house group and it's in the stark contrast you know to, to the big site of Los Guachimontones and and Beekman proposes that perhaps at Los Guachimontones the the rules of society were stronger because he believes um, in the tequila valleys the people were ruled through collective governance uh, where elite lineage heads, uh, like a group of them ruled together. So there would have been eight or more lineage heads making decisions. So at the big site, the rules were stronger. They, they, it was harder to become more powerful than another lineage head. So they had more modest uh, burials. But as you moved away uh, along the periphery, those rules were less stringent, and you had other uh, lineage heads that were able to exert more control and then display their wealth where they normally wouldn't be able to otherwise. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting theory. You compare that to Nayarit or Colima, and it's a little different where they don't have monumental tombs or as elaborate tombs but then tombs are more frequently used um possibly for commoners rather than being restricted to elites in in and then in the, the tequila valleys the commoners would probably be buried in just pit burials rather than shaft tombs mm -hmm. there's this this mark of status in one area that that's not the same mark of status and others. Right, yeah. And I think that reinforces this whole concept, right, that these are different cultures. You know, they do have some unifying characteristics, but they are unique um, from one to the next. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the Huachimontones. I think those are really interesting. Um, and they are one of the very few examples of Mesoamerican architecture that is round, correct? Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, Guachimonton, for those who, who are unfamiliar, if you picture like a bullseye, um, they're shaped like a bullseye where the, the building, it consists of four elements really. Um, there's a base circular platform in which everything is built upon. 
and it forms the, the surface of the, the patio space later on. And in the center of that patio platform is a circular stepped altar. And then along the edge of the patio platform is a ring platform we call a banquette. And on top of the banquette are an even number of quadrangular platforms facing inward towards the altar. And those number between four and 16, but they're typically, it's typically eight platforms evenly spaced um, on the banquette. And so the patio space is formed between the altar and the inner edge of the banquette. And uh, that's where presumably ritual activities would have taken place that were not being taken place on the platforms. In these, these guachimontones, in the tequila valleys at least, range in size from 10 or 15 meters. I don't know if we know about the smallest one, but our largest one is 120 meters, and that's circle one, hello, Squatchimontones. We call them circles out of ease, um, and because that's how Phil Wigan labeled them. Um, but they're, they're sometimes joined together in which one Guachimontone will share a platform with another. So it's usually a larger circle with a smaller circle built off of it. Kind of gives it a little bit of a weird shape because typically that shared platform is much bigger than the, the other platforms in the, the smaller circle. So it's disproportionate. And we're not sure why they do that just yet, but that's also a result of a few, only a handful of sites being excavated. Right. And um, they're, they're found on the valley bottom, on hilltops, on a ridge top, nestled in a ravine. Um, there's a couple hundred in the Tequila Valleys. Uh, there's a couple examples in Guanajuato, in the Bolaños Canyon to the north, and then the really large ones near Comala and Colima. And their, their smallest one is 100 meters. Their largest one is, I think, three, the 320 meters in diameter. It's huge. Wow. Um, and and the, that was only really reported in 2015. Um, Phil, Phil Wigan had mentioned it in publications. There's Guachimontones near Comala, but no one produced a map or a photograph or anything until Ole uh, Barrientos uh, at Ino Colima um, mm -hmm. excavated one of them. Wow, yeah, that is huge. <laughs> yeah. And these are, um, these Guachimontones have associations with Mesoamerican ideas of cosmology, right? Yeah, um, so Wigan had, had proposed that you always find shaft tombs underneath a Guachimontone, but we know that that's not the case. Sometimes you do find them, but that hard association, you, you don't really find it. Um, there are some shaft tombs, sometimes they're found nearby, um, but not always directly under, underneath. So if you have a shaft tomb underneath, or nearby, the shaft tombs, they kind of represent the underworld where it's a dark enclosed space. And in the rainy season, they often flood. So it is watery. Mm. And then if you have the Guachimontone on the surface. The altar is possibly um, a representation of, of the sacred mountain uh, in Mesoamerica, in which corn comes from, water comes from, where the gods dwell on top. And then the association with the heavens comes from post holes found in the altar or in the patio space if there's no altar, sometimes there's not an altar, and ceramic models from the region showing simplified guachimontones. And those are usually four little houses arrayed in a quadpartite pattern. And then in the center is a pole or sometimes two um, with one pole straight, one pole bent. And there's a figurine balanced on top. 
and it's been argued that they're doing some kind of pull ceremony, maybe a voladere ceremony. People have seen the, the voladeres uh, swing down from, from ropes attached to their feet in Mexico. They try to make 13 circuits before they, they reach the bottom. Uh, but there are other pole ceremonies in Mesoamerica, like raising an artificial tree or um, putting an amaranth doe figurine at the top and then having people climb to try to get the, the doe figurine. Uh, we're not certain which ceremony, but these pole ceremonies are, tend to be associated with the heavens. So with the Guachimontones, it kind of preserves the vertical arrangement of Mesoamerican uh, cosmology with the underworld, underground, the earthly plane on the earth and the heavens and the heavens, rather than array it horizontally with different buildings associated with the different cosmological levels. Right. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting. And it's, it's kind of really helpful, right? That we have these ceramic models that can give us insight into what was going on, what things were happening that we otherwise wouldn't have a physical record of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so West Mexico, they, they love to make their ceramic figurines and they make large hollow ones and small solid ones. The large hollow ones, uh, were the target of looters, but they also sometimes took the small solid ones. And then they all made all, all these dioramas and, and models of buildings, like houses. They have ball courts, they have guachimontones, they have processions in which people are, are just attached with their feet to a slab of clay at, at the base and they're carrying someone in a litter. They have people in these bed-looking objects, which they may, they may actually be dead and that they're being prepared for burial and perhaps what they're laying on is what they lowered into the shaft tomb because the bodies that have been recovered from shaft tombs, they don't, they don't indicate any post-mortem uh, fractures. So they're not tossing the bodies down the shaft and then moving them into place. They are somehow carefully lowering them, mm -hmm. uh, the several meters required. And, and the models show people grinding corn or dancing, playing music. There's a possible marriage ceremony in which a couple is wrapped around a blanket, which is a Mesoamerican cu uh, custom. Um, there's one model showing a group of warriors on the altar of a guachimontone and another group in the patio and they're they're facing off so it's this huge range of of activities and it makes up kind of for the fact that they didn't produce murals they didn't make codex style uh scenery on their pottery their their pottery is just geometric shapes and designs so all of their representations of animals and people and objects are are in the models and not on, on textiles, as far as we know, or murals or, or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's such a, it's something that is so unique to West Mexico that, you know, you, you don't see this kind of stuff in figurines from, say, the Maya area, or even, even for, you know, the rest of Central Mexico, right? This is something that mm -hmm. is very West Mexican in design and execution. Some of the things that these ceramic models show are, are really fascinating. I I know that there are some, some of these models show stylized representations of burials for the dead, right? You get dogs that are kind of alluding to death and burial places. Um, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, so, so the Kalima dog effigy figures, because they likely came from shaft tombs, uh, were buried with the dead and may have been acted as guides for the dead to the underworld. But then you have these ceramic models of houses, uh, these four-posted houses. They have elaborate painted roofs, people doing things. And the house are, houses are always on kind of a rather large block. And it may be the platform that the house is built on 
or it may be their way of kind of showing what's underground because along the outer edge, sometimes you find little spaces uh, modeled out of that platform in which a person is placed with a dog and you don't find the dog up near the people at all. You always find it with the person in the little space. So it kind of suggests that they're modeling uh, perhaps like a family burial that's buried under the house, like Huitzilapa, um, that that's their ancestor. And like on the roof, they often have birds. So there's that association with the heavens. So they're, they're still trying to keep that cosmological arrangement even in their models when they depict things. Oh, only a few burials have been recovered at Los Guachimontones, and four little shaft tombs were found near Circle 3. Three of them had people in them, and the fourth one had a dog, and that was it. Someone, oh, wow. Someone took the time to make a shaft tomb for their dog. Wow, that's amazing. A, a dog. Yeah, so the association with dogs and the, and the underworld are present in West Mexico. It's just portrayed a little differently. Right. Yeah. So I know that you are working on, um, you've got your own, your own projects that you're working on and you're looking at the idea of Guachimontones as oriented towards sacred mountains or sacred parts of the landscape. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that project and the, uh, the things you're finding along the way? All right. Yeah. Um, I, Last year, I started working on this um, because I was reading another student's master's thesis, uh, Sheena Duval. Her thesis was testing the possibility whether guachimontones were oriented towards astronomical phenomena, like sunrises and sunsets for equinoxes and solstices. And she tested a number of sites throughout the Tequila Valleys and, and measured them um, by going in the center of the platform and measuring the center line of where the platform is or where she thought the platform was if it was unexcavated, as well as the center line of the spaces between the platform, because ceramic models of Guachimontone show perishable buildings on this platform, so they could have obstructed the view. Right. And after obtaining all these measurements in in kind of reconstructing the sky and the past and, and where the sun would have risen and set uh, and taking into consideration the, the mountains like the on the horizon, she found a loose association with their orientation and astronomical alignments, but nothing definitive. And it could be a sample size issue. It could be that perhaps the orientation was was more important in one period than the other, perhaps earlier in the early formative, and then they stopped caring by the classic, uh, similar to like Maya E groups, in which Maya E groups were used to, to mark the solstices or equinoxes. I'm unsure because I'm not a Mayanist. <laughs> but I, I do know their, their meaning changed and, and the orientation stopped being important. Right. So reading that, I was like, well, maybe, maybe instead of an astronomical orientation, perhaps it's sacred mountains. You have the altar right there in Aguachimontón, and the and the biggest mountain around is Tequila Valley, and it even kind of looks like a Aguachimontón altar. And I had this idea that, like Cerro Gordo at Teotihuacan and the Pyramid mm-hmm. of the Moon, perhaps everyone had one platform oriented towards Tequila Volcano and maybe one or more other platforms to, to other lesser but still sacred mountains in the valley. And I did, I tested a number of sites in, in GIS and I created several hundred uh, view sheds radiating out of the Guachimontones with kind of a rather narrow uh, view shed at a plus minus one degree and out of 350 view sheds only three of them were oriented towards tequila volcano oh wow <laughs> so uh 
the hypothesis was not proven correctly. Hmm. <laughs> but when I was working on it, it was for a paper at the SAA, and I'm working on it again because I, I never went back and looked at Duval's astronomical data to see whether there's overlap or uh, perhaps the two data sets complement each other in which maybe one platform's oriented towards a mountain and the next one is an equinox and then a mountain or in a solstice. Right. Um, so I'm going back and doing that and, the, and I'm also going back and testing the spaces between the platforms because I didn't do that either. Um, mm -hmm. It was a time issue in which the SAAs were coming out up and I was running out of time. Right. Um, I'm keeping my hopes low that, that I'll have more positive results. Um, but that's not to say that, that the Guachimontones aren't oriented towards other possible mountains. It's just that with my results, there were so many mountains or possible mountains. Right. Um, and only a handful of examples in which a Guachimontone like two different Guachimontones from two different sites uh, were oriented towards the same mountain. Mm -hmm. So there were cases of that, but they were few and it wasn't consistent. It, it wasn't a strong argument that I wanted to try to make um, that they were doing this. And again, perhaps it has to do with uh, the time period in which they were built. Uh, at Los Guachimontones, we know that they started building Circle One like around 100 BC, and the last Guachimontone was built sometime between 3 and 400 AD. So there's several centuries in which things could have changed, meaning could have changed, right. and perhaps orientation's one of that. But I want to see it through, you know, to, to make sure. That, that there is no pattern. Right. And if, no, if there's no pattern, then what does that mean? Why, why is there at least a loose, there is a kind of a loose orientation. It's just variable. Maybe they, they weren't very good at, at astronomy, and so that's what the variability is from. Yeah. Maybe they're trying to do 13 degrees east of north, but they were, they were just bad at doing it. Mm -hmm. You can never tell. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things that I think that further, further testing could shed some sort of light on that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're going to pause it right there and we'll pick up the following section of the podcast in our next episode, which will be coming out later on this week. Please be sure to tune in to hear the rest of our conversation. We're going to be talking about the, the latter half of West Mexico's history. So everything that happened after what we've talked about here. Tony's going to give us a lot more little nuggets about West Mexico, and you're going to learn a lot more than what we've already learned so far. So be sure to tune in. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get the notifications. And we will see you in the next episode.